It is August 1st, 1888, and you, dear ass kicker, are chained up in some shitty cinder block cell under Old Town Pizza. The human race was dying out. No one left to scream and shout. This is some kick ass Oregon history. Welcome to another installment of Kick-Ass Oregon History, a survey created by the geeked out history folks at orhistory.com. I'm your host, Andy Lindbergh, and under the guidance of resident historian Doug Kent Crispin, we profile only the most badass, captivating Oregon stories. It's all Oregon sex, drugs, rock and roll, and earth-shattering, devastating destruction. Basically, the good stuff. Today, Shanghai in Portland, part two, the bullshitting. Because uh, anybody that's seen the Willamette, well, you've seen the pictures of it downtown with people standing around riding in boats during the century. You know, that wouldn't be a good time to put anybody in a tunnel. <laughs> Remember the Bunko Kelly story of finding 24 almost dead dudes in the basement of the Snug Harbor Saloon slash Johnson & Sons Undertakers that we detailed in episode one of our Shanghai and Portland podcast series? Let's take a closer look at this story. First of all, Stuart Holbrook notes that once the Flying Prince reached the mouth of the Columbia, all of the men were discovered to be dead. Holbrook writes that, Astoria newsmen soon had the story on the wires, and the sensation following the discovery of the dead men made a great rumpus in Portland. But an examination of the papers from October of 1893 reveals no news piece of a grisly discovery of 24 dead sailors from Portland. Surely such a spectacle would have earned at least a mention. The story has taken on a life of its own and has grown over the years of retelling. On our recent tour of the supposed Shanghai tunnels, our tour guide gave the number of dudes that were drunk on formaldehyde as 35, not the 24 as per Stuart Holbrook. Additionally, our Shanghai Tunnel tour guide further strengthened his legend of the nefarious associations with these basements and told us how Bunko Kelly and his men took the nearly dead, soon-to-be sailors through the Shanghai Tunnels to the Flying Prince. No mention of going up and down the ladder, which Holbrook almost painstakingly pointed out. No word of the five or six cabs and the sparks from the horses' hooves on the cobblestone streets. Finally, the price paid for the disabled men had risen from $30 apiece in Holbrook's rendering 
to $50 and an additional $5 for each man because of the cost to get them all dead drunk. Now, numbers can change in a retelling, inflated for dramatic effect, but several historians have looked into the incident and can find nothing in the record to verify this wild story, the Holbrook or our tunnel tour version. Our own ribald resident historian, Doug Kent Crispin, has spent a considerable amount of time researching it, and even he has come up empty. In addition, there appears to be no record of a ship called the Flying Prince. We asked historian Finn John, and author of Wicked Portland, about this tale. Seven You've looked into this embalming fluid yarn. Tell us oh, what yes, you found. the Stuart Holbrook story. Yeah. Well, it's such a wonderful story, and I desperately want it to be at least partly true. And I've been trying really hard to find evidence of it. And the problem is that I can't find any. Um, I'm sure that it was based on something. Because Stuart Holbrook first wrote this in, I believe it was 1933, in, um, in the Portland Morning Oregonian. In, in 1933, there would have been people alive who would remember 1893. That, that would have been within their lifespan. So if he had just made it up out of whole cloth, like somebody would have piped up and said, it wasn't like that at all. This is a bunch of crap. And there haven't been any, I didn't see, um, and I looked pretty hard. I didn't see any letters to the editor calling him on it or anything like that. But at the same time, you know, we've got, in, in his original story, he talked about 24 dead and dying guys. Like half of them dead and half of them clinging to life. Um, being unloaded from a ship at, um, at Astoria. And he goes on to say that it lit up a huge kind of brouhaha in the newspapers and went on the wires and stuff. Well, I just didn't see any evidence of that at all. And looking in the Portland City Directory, I can't find, for any of those years... Johnson Brothers Undertaking Parlors, or the Snug Harbor Saloon. So I just don't know what to make of it. I guess it's one of those things that it might be true. It might be BS. I, mean, I, I guess I would say that the, um, the bullshit to um, reality ratio in that is somewhere between 20 and 90%. We also had an opportunity to speak with historian Barney Blaylock, author of the forthcoming book entitled Portland Waterfront's Lost History. Here's what Mr. Blaylock had to say on the topic. What's your take on this classic Portland yarn? Well, it's, it's really... Holbrook is pulling everybody's leg to begin with on that one. For one thing, um, a, a large, large sailing vessel of the day, like, uh, for instance, I can think of one that was pointed out in the Oregonian as being especially large was the Europe, a French vessel that came in in the Grain Fleet in 1900, had a crew of 24. <laughs> so, you know, um, maybe there might have been one or two groaning, dying drunks in a basement somewhere, but nowhere near any of the numbers that anybody has ever put down in their books. I had an occasion to attend one of these Shanghai tunnel tours recently. 
my 11-year-old pre-goth daughter Molly joined me, and I must say we had a wonderful daddy-daughter date together, walking underneath roughly Old Town Pizza, the boiler room, and hobos. We bumped around in the dark, ducking under pipes and stepping over broken bricks as we heard tales of horror ghosts and creepy little spectral babies that might grab your hand as you stumble through the darkness. If you haven't been there before, dear ass kicker, I highly recommend that you seek out one of these outfits running these tours and go enjoy the experience. It was a ton of fun, some action-packed quality entertainment, and uniquely Portland. But was it real? your head there. All right. Welcome to the Shanghai Tunnel. It all started in 1850, really because of the California gold rush. Ships were coming here to Portland. Guys were jumping overboard and heading south trying to strike it rich in the gold fields. The captains soon found themselves without any crews. What were they to do? Relax. It's no big deal. They just shanghaied a few new men to fill those positions. The practice really didn't start to boom until 1870. From 1870 to 1917, just before WW1, as many as 3,000 men a year at its height disappeared from this port. That was at its height. The average was only 1,500. Now, Portland never tried to deny that there was an underground. They just tried to justify that this was for legitimate commerce. They tried to claim that this was so goods could be delivered from the waterfront and directly into the basements of buildings, so you didn't have to go above ground and deal with any of that nasty rain and the mud and at times even stumps in the streets. And since this was supposedly a legitimate reason, there was no need to hide its construction. But eventually what developed was a deliberate network used primarily for Shanghai. Historian Finn John weighed in on this topic. There wouldn't have been any reason to, um, to, to drag an unconscious guy through the underground tunnels in 1896 or something like that because we were doing it all the time and nobody cared. Historian Barney Blaylock also agrees with this sentiment. Once you get into this stuff, I've been living in the 19th century in newspapers and you start to think, wait a minute now. <laughs> The main thing is they didn't need a tunnel to Shanghai somebody. I can show you printouts of newspaper reports of uh, United States deputy marshals riding down to Astoria to make sure that the crew that doesn't want to be on the ship stays on the ship until they go to sea. And that's with everybody watching. That's not done. 
in the dark of night. That's just the way it worked. I have a printout of a Astoria paper where they uh, where they call the U.S. Marshals. Uh, they actually imply they're working for Jim Turk, who's one of the big Shanghaiers. Some of the stories I heard were just outlandish. They collected their victims in advance at bordellos, opium dens, gambling halls, saloons, and brought them into the underground and locked them up in holding cells, make them available for sea captains seven days a week, 24 hours a day. Others were just plain weird. If they ran out of food, you would be the first one eaten because cannibalism was alive and well on these ships. Now. If there was more than one man on the ship who had been shanghaied, they would draw straws to see who would have been eaten first. When they announced that they were having long pork, sometimes called long pig, that meant they were having human flesh. You did not want to get shanghaied. Some helpful advice was dispensed. So, how did you avoid being shanghaied? If you were an able-bodied male in the North End, you were at risk. But if you could stay out of the saloons, stay out of the opium dens, you could probably escape the clutches of these land sharks because they wanted easy victims. They wanted victims who were drunk, and they wanted victims who were drugged up, and there were plenty of easy victims here in the old the North is, End. The thing is, Doug, we're dealing with folklore here, waterfront folklore, and, and some of it is true, and, and some of it is bullshit, and that's okay. As a historian, it's my job, indeed my duty, to double check things. If I hear a great story about some horror ghost or even a tall mythical forest primate, it's my obligation to go to the dusty aged printed page to access the records and see if there's anything to these outlandish tales. You expect this from me, cause see, I'm a real historian. And when I look into this Shanghai tunnel business, it just isn't much to indicate that it really happened. In fact, I might be going out on the proverbial limb here, but there just doesn't seem to be anything at all to substantiate it. The first accounts of any old tunnel business appear in the 1970s editions of the Oregonian. In the December 21st, 1975 edition of the Sunday Oregonian, an article entitled History Project Records Portland Recollections is the first note that we have found to mention Shanghai tunnels. In this article, reporter Janet Getz wrote that there was some indication that these tunnels accompanied the crimping activity, hardly a sweeping endorsement. Another article, written almost a year later, notes that the tunnels were used for access to underground sewers, as well as for merchants between buildings and to their underground warehouses. Some were so large that they could accommodate wagons, and the article speculated that ships would be loaded and unloaded into these tunnels. Clandestine uses of the tunnels were briefly discussed, but these were specifically limited to the Chinese gambling and opium dens needing a quick escape. 
The article states that Portland's tunnel system was ideal for Shanghai, but developed for ordinary requirements. By 1978, the legends of the tunnels seemed to have solidified a bit, although the reporter noted that the purpose of the tunnels was still, quote, disputed. The article in Northwest Magazine noted that Were the Shanghai victims taken through the tunnels? It's not hard to conjure a picture of drugged men being trundled under Portland streets in the dead of the night to a waiting boat. A picture conjured, yes. Proven? Hardly. It's also interesting to note that none of these stories from the 1970s note anything near like cells or holding cages to store up hapless victims, like 4-H pigs or sheep at the Oregon State Fair. So how might all of this Shanghai tunnel business have started? We asked historian Barney Blaylock this very question. You can't find a, uh, a, a whisper about the tunnels at least I can't. I cannot find a whisper <laughs> about the tunnels. I'm not saying they're not there, and I'm not saying I'm not full of BS, because it's been known to happen. But uh, where was it? There was a. It was sometime in the 19, early 1960s, 61 or 62, up in Port Townsend. A uh, hardware store started advertising that they had a Shanghai tunnel in their basement and giving tours to get people to come to their hardware store. And then in, uh, in Portland, it was 63, they were tearing down some buildings in Chinatown. And uh, somebody on the site construction guy or somebody decided that the tunnels they were uncovering were Shanghai tunnels. And uh, then what I think is really interesting is this guy, uh, Gary Cooper, who was a restaurant owner and may still be around, I don't know, but in uh, 72, he restored the New Market Theater block. And he put a bar down in the basement called Darby O'Gills, and he put it in uh, a place where there, there was an old drainage tunnel, and he uh, cut the tunnel into booths. And then, of course, the papers and everybody said that was a Shanghai tunnel. Stuart Holbrook, who wrote about Bunko Kelly's cigar store Indian and the dudes dying from formaldehyde being sold to unsuspecting ship captains, was obviously like us at Kick-Ass Oregon History, a fan of a fantastic, dramatic tale. But yet, in all of his voluminous writings that detail the Shanghai trade that I've consulted, there's not one mention of these so-called tunnels, nor any other nefarious subterranean activity. Surely Holbrook would not have let such a sordid, scenic story pass without being penned. Nor does Richard Dillon, author of The Shanghai Days, the definitive account on the subject, utilize any ink to discuss these Portland tunnels. He does mention supposed Shanghai tunnels in Port Townsend, Washington, the validity of which Dylan spends some time poo-pooing. Dylan writes some 16 dense pages discussing crimping in Portland, and not once, not even in a passing reference, does he mention any tunnels in P-Town. Were there passages underground in what we today called Old Town? You bet there were, and there still are. I've been in them myself. 
there's no disputing this architectural fact. But were these tunnels designed as a deliberate network for shanghaiing drunken men off to ships that needed an able-bodied crew? As Brandt would say, Well, dude, we just don't know. I hope I'm wrong. I really do. As longtime listeners to this broadcast will tell you, there's nothing I love more than a homegrown Oregon kick-ass tale. And it just doesn't get much more kick-ass than drugging some poor bastard logger, keeping him in a cage for a few nights and dragging him through some subterranean tunnel to a ship vessel bobbing gently on the ship-filled Willamette, ready to take this poor, barefoot, and bearded soul to China, Australia, or France. It is a fucking awesome story, and it has evolved over the decades into a truly identifiable yarn in Portland's heritage. But what I really yearn for with Kick-Ass Oregon history is true tales, and I just can't find much documentation on this legend that we are now encumbered with. I do look forward to someone proving me wrong, and if they do, I will fully recant this trepidation that I have with embracing this fantasyful romance. When presented with convincing documentation of something akin to a planned, designed, and engineered system of tunnels, created for the purpose of ferrying unconscious folks to ships, I will cheerfully craft a special edition Kick-Ass Oregon History Podcast and let everyone know how these myths are substantiated and then why they should now be considered part of the historical record. Hell, I'll even blog about less than convincing documentation that we invite you to pass along. If there is any validity to these tales, any at all, Let's take them out of the shrouded darkness in the basements and the shadows and bring them to the light of day for everyone to enjoy in a podcast, baby. But unfortunately, and quite sincerely do I say it, unfortunately, until that point, I think we have to lump the Shanghai tunnels into the same category of air quote history as Bigfoots and UFO coast monoliths and other oddities of unsubstantiated Oregon history. Thank you for listening, Ass Kickers, and be on the lookout for future podcasts from ORHistory.com. We hope that you agree that this episode featured some kick-ass Oregon history. Today's podcast was written, recorded, edited, and produced by Doug Kank Crispin and Andy Lindbergh. Citations are available on request. Kick-ass Oregon history is on Twitter at Oregon underscore history. We're also on the Facebook, 
The email address is OregonHistorian at gmail.com. Want more kick-ass Oregon history in your life? Learn more at ORHistory.com. Just be sure to show proof of your identity to Mr. Kent Crispin, or he's liable to prove that you're complete bullshit. You stay historic, Oregon, and kick ass. After a couple of Newcastles. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> you know that's going to probably end up in the bloopers, right? Like, I was on something. <laughs> yeah. ORHistory.com